The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. This year, I'm a year older than I was last year. You know what I mean? But you're young at heart, John. Young at heart. I'm young at heart. But my physical body is a year older than it was a year ago. And sometimes that can affect sexual performance. And sexual performance issues are much more common than you think. Over 25% of new ED cases are guys under 40, KC. That's you, buddy. I know. And 40% of men by age 40 struggle with not being able to get and maintain an erection. Even a world's greatest actor can't fake one, right? You can't fake an erection. So why do guys turn to weird solutions or do nothing when they can turn instead to medicine and science? Because we can fix this. Go to 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to solve your ED problems. They have well-known generic equivalents and name-brand prescriptions to help you combat ED. No snake oils, no pills, no gas station counter supplements, only prescription solutions backed by science. Remember, KC, no waiting room, no awkward in-person doctor visits, no lines. Save hours, time, and keep your secrets secret. Go to ForHims.com. It's so easy. They'll answer a few quick questions. You can chat with the doctor in a confidential review. Products are shipped to your door blindly. And severe ED isn't just an issue for old, rich guys in bathtubs. It affects men in their 30s and 40s. And we can fix it. Try Hims for a month today for just $5. $5! We'll get you started for just 5 bucks while supplies last. See the website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to a doctor or pharmacy. Go to forhims.com slash taffer5. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash taffer5. Forhims.com slash taffer5. Hard made easy. <laughs> Say hello to your little friend and go to forhims.com. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Welcome to another episode of No Excuses with me, John Taffer. I want to thank my sponsors before I even get going. BetDSI, Quicken Loans, True Car, 4 and Helix Mattress. Without them, we wouldn't be here, Casey. So they keep us going. And because of them, you get to have this podcast every week. So I am really appreciative of my sponsors. And boy, we got a great episode this week. I got Bill Angville with me, who's one of the greatest comedians in America. I love Bill. So we're going to talk about his career, comedy, how he found his success. I've got some great audience call in this week. And man, I got a lot of stuff going on in the world to talk about. Whew. I don't know if this world is getting more screwed up, KC, or just crazier. I think it's a combination of both. <laughs> yeah, I, it, People say things and do things today that are just crazy. And, you know, when you think back years ago, political correctness didn't exist like it does today. So you think about it, KC, you know, there are things that I couldn't say to you or I could say to you years ago about you being younger than me or different than me or educated. different. I could find a million things to say to you 10 years ago. That would be in would be politically incorrect today. So how the hell do these people go on TV online and write things that are nastier than we've ever seen before? 
So when people say political correctness is greater today than before, I challenge that, Casey. I think political correctness is less than before because we're so quick to scream, insult, challenge, you know, be politically divisive. It sort of bums me out. So we can talk about it. That's what friends do. Yes. So, so when I look at the world today, the divisiveness just prevents us from doing that. And, you know, sometimes when we look at, at the environment that we're in, if we just took a deep breath and looked in each other's eyes, I think things could go <laughs> a lot better. But I'll tell you, things did not go so well for the greatest bar in the world. And it's a shame. And this is my world, and I got a lot of respect for these people. But in 2018, the world's best bar, right, was called the Dandelion in London. And it was reviewed as the world's best bar in 2018. And what do you think happened last week, Casey? They shut their doors. They, they closed the sucker down. So I have a question. How can the world's best anything go out of business in less than a year? If it was the world's best, people would go. So I suggest that this bar was the world's best bar to the ego of the writers who wrote it and the people who built it. But at the end of the day, when customers came in this bar, it sucked because they didn't come back. So I don't understand how the world's best anything can fail that quickly. Now, have, so, you, have, have you been there, John? I have not. So I challenged the list. I challenge those who write the list. I challenge the premise of it. And when I look at these bars that are viewed as the world's best bars, the good, the best, you know, they don't look at sales per foot, right? How can the world's best bar achieve no sales? They don't look at profitability. How can the world's best bar not make money? They don't look at branding elements, promotional elements, revenue streams, return on investments. Some writer walks into this bar, looks at the decor, has a drink, said, wow, this is metabolic cocktails. How freaking cool is that? And he rates it the best bar in the world. But you know what, Casey? The customers didn't. And for that reason, that bar was bullshit. And I hate to say it because I have huge respect for the industry and people who build things like this. But when I take a look at the top 10 on the list, the Dandelion is one in London. The American Bar is number two, also in London. Manhattan is number three in Singapore. The Nomad, number four in New York. The Connaught Bar in London is five. Bar Termini in London is six. The Clumsies in Athens is seven, Atlas in Singapore, eight, Dante in New York, nine, and the old man in Hong Kong is 10. How many of those have you heard of, Casey? <laughs> I, uh, none, but I have an Applebee's near my house. It's really good. <laughs> the, the neighborhood bar. So if they're the world's best bar, how come we haven't heard of them? If they're the world's best bar, how come there aren't lines standing in front of them to get in? So what is defined as best in a business? If you open the Taj Mahal as a business and it's freaking beautiful and it goes broke the next day, is that a success? Does the beauty matter if it's a business that failed? So the fact of the matter is how can the best of any business in the world not make money? It defies logic. To me, the best 
is a bar or a restaurant or a business that's packed, that makes money, that has customer loyalty, engages their audience and their customers, creates excitement and energy, and certainly survives for more than a year. So that's enough of beating up Dandelion in London. I, I wish them all luck. I know there's a great mixologist there. I won't want to mention his name. We put that bar together and in some ways caused a failure. But I just wanted to highlight that when you read an article, The World's Best, I suggest you look hard. How are they defining the world's best? Is it an opinion of some writer? Is, is it some committee? Did they look at numbers? So the word best is BS, buddy, unless you know what best <laughs> means. And here's another example. Snap. Do you know that Snapchat, Snap Inc. is out of money? It's going broke. Really? Uh, uh, oh, yeah. They're, they're as good as gone. They're going to lose $1.5 billion in 2019, and they're looking to rebuild its user base would you say that Snapchat is, is one of the most successful social media companies when they lost a billion and a half dollars this year? No, not at all. Well, there you go. So Snapchat is a failure. It's not generating revenue. It has no outlook in future. It has a product issue. And uh, uh, it's difficult. And I get frustrated when people call failures successes. So, you know, people have to understand that that company is a failure and, and their CEO Evan Spiegel's goal of profitability in 2019 is a dream. Casey, you an Anthony Bourdain fan? I was a huge fan. I still watch uh, No Reservations on Netflix. I love that show. That's a great show. But, you know, in his show, Parts Unknown, there was an episode that premiered this week where he actually talked about his death. And it's really eerie because he committed suicide literally a couple of days later. And he was talking on camera about how he wants to go. He said, how I want to go. The question is, uh, uh, leave me in the jungle, he replied. I don't want to party. Reported dead. That's all he wanted to do. And then he went on and said, we don't need to talk about uh, uh, me uh, 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 or anything. He said, quote, this is how he wanted to die. He said, Throw me in a wood chipper. Spray me into Harrods in the middle of rush hour, he said. That would be pretty epic. I wouldn't mind being remembered in that way. He wants to be remembered in a way that is entertaining. And when you watch the episode, it just aired on CNN. Try to watch it. It was really, really very eerie to look in his eyes and hear him talk about that. And, and, you know, that death was such a casual, almost consequential thing to him. He didn't seem to fear it. And he, he thought about it in an entertaining way. It's a little strange. So everybody should watch it if they haven't. It's a real look into sometimes the strangeness of the human mind. So, you know, I lived in Chicago. My wife, Nicole's from Chicago. And, you know, whenever we would drive, we'd always see the Sears Tower, the Sears Tower. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sears was a monster. And the other day I was actually online because I was really depressed to hear that Sears is about to file bankruptcy. And if you haven't done it, everybody should do it. You should go online and look up a Sears catalog from like 1912, 1915. You can buy a house that you put together yourself, a two-story, like 1,700-square-foot house, for $1,200 in the Sears catalog around 1915, 1920. You bought your house wow. from Sears. You bought your car from Sears. You bought your farming equipment from Sears. They were the largest retailer in the world. Now they're closing. They're filing bankruptcy. They've been closing stores like crazy. And personally, I find it, you know, really sad. And when we take a look at companies like Amazon and, and even Zulu and companies like this that have taken market share from Sears, you have to say to yourself, how does a company – that has that size and success fails so much. 
They had the Craftsman tool line, the Kenmore appliance line. But Sears was so powerful that and so big that there's an interesting thing about Chicago radio that I bet you don't know, Casey. No, what's that? Two of the biggest radio stations in Chicago are WGN and WLS. WLS is a radio station and a television station was started by Sears. And WLS stood for world's largest store. About six months later, the Chicago Tribune didn't like that. So they went and they opened up their own TV channel and they opened up their own radio stations and they called it WGN, world's greatest newspaper. And that started the rivalry between WLS and WGN. And they were two monster companies in Chicago. Well, Tribune today is Tribune Broadcasting. It's extremely successful. It's the largest station group of television stations in the world. And Sears, unfortunately, went down the tubes. It's, it's a sad story, and I hope that the brand somehow lives on. But it's like Toys R Us, KC, yeah. which we lost a few weeks ago, too. But I read an interesting article that Toys R Us is coming back. And that retailers uh, uh, like Macy's and stores like that are considering putting a Toys R Us department within their store. Toys R Us might live on in some type of a different rendition, but it's a great brand. I hope it does, and I hope Sears lives on also. When you think about how Sears impacted the lives of our parents, our grandparents, our great-great-grandparents, it's an American icon. I really hate to see it go. You know, being in the beverage business, I've been looking at a lot of data lately, and I have my uh, bourbon that I'm a partner on called Frey Ranch. And our bourbon has been aging for four years, and I'm really excited about it. And people can learn more about it if you want to go to YouTube and go to Frey Ranch and look up the videos on it. But I'm really excited. And over the past few weeks, we've been working on bottling and branding, and I've been doing a whole bunch of research on beer and spirits. And some of the things that I have found, Casey, are absolutely unbelievable. For example, experimentation is really key in the alcohol space. So right now, experimentation, new brand experimentation in bourbon is the highest of any alcohol adult product in the country. 7% of the population or 7% growth will try a new whiskey. Wow. 3% will try a new vodka. To try a new beer is minus 3%. The beer category is struggling, and I just did a keynote for a beer company last week, uh, uh, they are completely freaking out. Here's another one for you that's fascinating. When I say the word craft, and I put that word in front of beer, in front of whiskey, or in front of vodka, which one does the word mean the most in? Well, if I put craft in front of whiskey, it increases the viability of the product by 8%. If I put the word craft in front of vodka, it increases its viability by 6%. If I put the word craft in front of beer, it's now minus 2%. And what has happened, and this is strictly my view, craft beer companies have opened all across the country, and half of them suck. They make shitty beer in dirty environments, and as an end result, because of all the lousy craft beers out there, they've burned the whole premise of craft beer. So it doesn't have the appeal that it used to have. Here's another interesting one. Craft brands quality. So if you were to pick a brand because it's a craft brand, because you think it's high quality, how much does the word craft relate to quality today? Well, for bourbon, the word craft in front of bourbon means that 9% are, are more viable in quality. People will like that. Vodka's 4%. Beer, minus 1%. 
So the word craft doesn't mean in the marketplace that the beer is good anymore. Shame on the industry for letting that happen. Here's another one interesting for you. Heritage brands, old brands that have been around from our parents' time. Heritage brands, quality. Uh, uh, for whiskey, a heritage brand is perceived as 2% more viable than a non-heritage brand. For beer, it's minus 5%. So no matter how you look at a beer category, uh, uh, beer is in trouble. Here's another one. Higher price equals higher quality. For whiskey, that number is 8% higher than last year. For vodka, that number is 5% higher for last year. For beer, that number is 4% lower than last year. Brands are fighting for success. Uh, uh, and the overall beer consumers do not seem overly concerned whether a craft beer is owned by a big company or not. The whole premise of craft beer has been burned. And people now understand that craft is not necessarily better. It's a shift for the entire industry. And uh, uh, beer companies are really struggling, and they're trying to figure out how to maintain market share. I was doing Fox News next week, and I was doing the Stuart Varney show, and Stuart proposed a question to me, which was interesting. John, how come beer companies aren't advertising in major sporting events anymore? Well, there's your answer, KC. They can't afford it. Beer sales are so in the tank, they're so in the toilet, that the entire industry is making a shift. As a matter of fact, I won't say which company. But one of the largest beer companies in the world right now, if you walk in their front door, there's a sign when you walk in. Their goal this year is to only lose one-tenth of one percent of their market share. So their ultimate goal is still to lose on a year. That's the outlook for the beer industry now. So for those of you who are about to invest in a craft brewery, I would think twice about it. I think we are past the power curve. I think we're going to see a lot of erosion. And my guess is, Casey, we will probably lose 50% of every craft beer brewery in the country in the next 12 to 18 months. Because this trend, the big companies can last it out. The small companies can't play. They're going to go broke. Even whiskey with women, whiskey and with females is up about 20% this year. So, you know, whiskey is what I love about whiskey is that bourbon is it's all American. It's the most American product there is. You know who was the first person in America to distill bourbon? George Washington. George Washington distilled about 10,000 gallons of bourbon every year and, and uh, was a bourbon drinker himself. He was our first distiller in America. So he got us going. And bourbon is, is is incredibly popular in Europe, Asia, all over the world right now. And it's terrific because American whiskeys are hot all around the world. Well, the beer industry has lost its head. It's <laughs> lost its performance. It's a little flat, if you know what I'm saying, Casey. But you know who isn't flat? Bill Angville. Man, do I love him. Bill Angville is not only an incredible comedian, great in sitcoms, even a dramatic actor. I love his story, how he became successful, and how he became a household name. And he's really created some of the greatest television content in the country. And, of course, you might remember that he was in a redneck comedy tour with Jeff Foxworthy and, and traveled with Ron White. And so I am really excited to have Bill on the show this week. And Bill is a guest I've been wanting to talk to for quite a long time. Uh, uh, because I respect his authenticity. I respect how real his success is to who he is. So when we come back, I'll be with Bill, so don't go anywhere. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? 
Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. You know, Casey, some of our body parts are bigger than they should be. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. And some of them are smaller than they should be. But certainly we're all different. And there's really nobody on the planet quite like you. So why? I ask you this. Why would you buy a generic mattress built for everyone else when your body is so unique? Well, Helix Sleep built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress just for you. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, like plush or a firm bed, with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com slash taffer and take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. For couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. And your wife would like that, wouldn't she, Casey? Oh, Absolutely. Here's the best part, buddy. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. So you'd be crazy not to do it. And right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off all mattress orders. Get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash taffer. That's helixsleep.com slash taffer for $125 off your mattress order. That's helixsleep.com slash taffer. Support for No Excuses comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive power buying process. Here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep that new lower rate. Either way, you win, buddy. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash taffer. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-day purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. Boy, I got to tell you, uh, uh, I've only been in show business for seven, eight years, uh, Bill. You've really been uh, uh, in the forefront, and I've been one of your biggest fans for so many years. I'm so pleased to have Bill Angville with me here today. Bill, I have watched well, everything you've thank done. thank you very much for that. <laughs> I have. I've watched everything you've done. And, you know, I'm a business guy who wound up with a reality show. You know that. And I still think of myself as a business guy. I never think of myself as a TV guy. And I always look back at people when they start, you know, and how they got into this. Because I know that you were going to become a teacher when you were younger, Right. Correct. Correct. And then uh, 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 I want to hear this story because I was talking to Dennis Miller a few weeks ago and he told me about how the first few times he got on stage, he puked his guts out before he got on stage and how nervous and terrifying for him it was back in the early days. You know, when I read your story, Bill, I think it's amazing how you're going to be a teacher. You went to a nightclub and pick up the story from there for me. 
Well, basically, I was in college to be a teacher, uh, but I had discovered women and beer, so studies went out the window. Uh, <laughs> so, because the reason I, I like kids, uh, enjoy working with them, uh, and I think that teachers who made learning fun, you can remember by name as far back as your schooling goes. Uh, and so I always thought that, you know, teachers were entertainers in their own right, but college wasn't working out, and uh, so it... Uh, it kind of just, uh, so I went back to Dallas and uh, became a, a DJ, basically, in a nightclub. And they opened up a comedy club down the road, and the bouncer at our club, who was a friend of mine, asked if I wanted to go watch an amateur night. And I said, yeah, you know, let's go watch some people suck. And uh, so we went down there, and a couple rounds of liquid encouragement went through us, and the next thing I knew, they had talked me into going on stage, and all I, I had no act. All I did was talk about, you know, what it was like being a DJ and some funny stories. Because, you know, we've always had comedy around our house. My dad always had, uh, you know, the button-down mind of Bob Newhart albums, and I uh, I had bought Steve Martin's Let Get, Let's Get Small album, which was oh, really the album that kind of, I guess you could say, sparked the interest, because, but I didn't think you could make a living at it. But you've always so, thought of uh, comedy that's about life. So even back then, in your first performance, you just went back and told stories and relatable things of your life. Yeah, which is basically what I do forty years later. <laughs> so, uh, yep, no, that's uh, that was, amazing. That was the uh, that was the seed that got planted, and uh, I just fell in love with it. I mean, people were laughing and they were having a good time, and I thought, well, this would be. And basically, I got to be honest with you, man. At that point in my career, my three job uh, requirements were work at night, drink on the job, and sleep in late. So not only did DJ and fill that, but comedy also filled that void. So I got hired as the MC at this comedy club. And basically my job was to pick the comics up at the airport on Monday, take them back to the airport the next Monday. And in between, I would uh, MC the show. So I got to learn from the best, you know, guys like Shanling and... Leno yeah. and Seinfeld and these guys. Uh, and so, so I learned how to construct an act. And, right? and basically almost I was there for two and a half years. Yeah. The, uh, I was just, yeah, basically all I was was a warm-up guy. But because I had a home club, and I was really one of two guys doing it in Dallas at that time, full-time, uh, I got to work on my act. So I was there, like I said, for two and a half years. And so by the time I left to go on the road, I already had 45 to 60 minutes of material. Wow. So when you, when you went back to your wife, Gail, and said, listen, I want to move to L.A. and become a comedian, how did she react to that? You know, uh, bless her heart, she's always supported what I've done. I mean, I'm sure there was times in her life that she thought, what the hell are we doing here? I know one <laughs> uh, instance for sure, when we finally got out to L.A., uh, I was such an idiot. I thought if you wanted to be an actor, you just called yourself an actor. Uh, I didn't realize you need to go to class and learn the skill. And so we moved out to L.A. and she was eight months pregnant. And I got my first audition. And I said, here, read this with me. And so we read it a couple of times. And I said, I'm ready. And I found this out years later that after I left the house, she just sat down the back porch and started crying. And I said, why? And she said, because we lived in a house we couldn't afford. I'm eight months pregnant, and you couldn't act your way out of a paper bag. <laughs> wow. Well, was that in a pair of jokers? Way, she got me to go to classes. Wow. Was that a pair of jokers, the first gig? Uh, that, was, that, that wasn't my first acting gig, but it was probably, uh, 
you know, I had done, uh, you know, some evening at the improvs and stuff like that. And then Para Jokers uh, called me and I had worked with Rosie before. And so that I really, that was really a, uh, a great show for me to do because it got me, uh, it was great training for doing the tonight show. Yeah, it sure was. The two of you were good together, too. You had a great a magnetic together. You know, I used to run the Troubadour in the late 70s, early 80s back then. And I used to go hang at the comedy store back then. And I was friends with the manager and Paulie and Mitzi, and I would hang there all the time. And I always found it remarkable, Bill, the difference between the scene at a music club versus a comedy club and how different the backstage environment is and the relationship between the artists is. And it, there's, they have nothing in common with each other. And, and uh, uh, so being an MC in that comedy club environment almost makes you culturally one of them because of the way you interact so much with each other, which bands and musicians don't typically do to that level. Uh, uh, and years ago, I was on Buddy Hackett's board of his charity, and he was one of my dearest friends. Of course, you know Buddy. And, and, right. uh, and Buddy talked me into doing five minutes at the comedy store. And it was the most horrifying five minutes of my life. So what they did is I did five minutes of his jokes. It can be pretty uh, daunting uh, the first time you go on stage. Uh, I mean, I was that way the first time I went on stage in L.A. because, you know, that's where all the big boys hung out. I mean, you might go up to the improv and be following Robin Williams, uh, you know, Gary Shanley, all these guys. You know, the lineup was just... And so you, you kind of, it was like jumping into the deep end of the pool. You either going to swim or you're going to sink. And, you know, it took me a little while to get my chops, but, uh, eventually I figured it out and, you know, uh, you're given five to seven minutes. And so there's not a lot of time for just messing around. You got to get right to the jokes. And, uh, it was, uh, I've met, you know, I got to tell you though, I've never had what I would call the typical career, uh, because in Dallas, like I said, I was only one of two people doing, so I got all the stage time. Uh, and then when I went to L.A. and I went to the improv, you know, I was getting 12.45, 1 a.m., 12.30 sets. And one night, Bud was there, and I walked up and I said, Bud, I really appreciate the the spots. I said, but I've got a, a newborn baby at home, and I really can't be coming out at 12.30 at night. And he goes, okay. Next thing I knew, I was getting 8.30, 8.45 sets. And the other comics were like, how'd you get those? And I go, I just asked him. You know, it's kind of like, you know, because, but that's just the way I've always been my whole life is like, I'm not, you know, if I got a problem, I go to whoever I think can solve the problem and yeah, we talk it out like and sure enough, you know, Friedman helped me out immensely. Yeah, but Freeman was like everybody's father, too, back in those days. You know, he was so centered to the business, uh, and the improv yeah. was so important back in those days. You know, it, it was a stepping stone uh, 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 to, to greater things back then. That was an amazing time. So what I also found fascinating about you is, Bill, you, you don't say no to freaking anything, which is unbelievable. If it's good, you'll do it. So you've done game shows, and you did one, I think, one of the most impressive shows I've ever seen, because I have several other friends that have done it. How hard was Dancing with the Stars? Uh, it was uh, it was more brutal than I thought. Uh, you know, and actually, when, uh, when I got the initial call, I was going to turn it down. Because uh, my first thought was, oh, God, is that where my career has gone now? Um, <laughs> but my wife said, you know what? It's seen by a lot of people. So I agreed to do it. 
and uh, got to the finals. But I will be honest with you, the only reason I got to the finals was not because of my dancing ability. It was just because I figured out what it was. It was a popularity contest. I mean, it wasn't a, literally a dance competition, because if it was, none of us would have been asked to do it. But what, what I stumbled upon was that here I was, 57 years old, dancing with this 24-year-old British bombshell. <laughs> and then at the end of the dance, I'd run over and kiss this 50-year-old woman who was my wife. And every woman in America went, see, why can't people just do this? You know, it's like, and, and I was grateful that Emma's age and my age were so far apart because it became more of a dad daughter kind of thing yeah. as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, being where there's somebody go, Ooh, wonder what's going on here. But yeah, I, uh, if I had to do it again, I would do it completely different. You know what's amazing is is knowing I was going to talk to you today. I looked at some clips last night, and you were good, man. You got some moves. Did you work really well, hard? I, at I will it? tell did you, I did work things? hard at it. Uh, you know, you were. Uh, it, as I tell my audience, uh, by the time I got done, I added up my time on that dance floor, and I realized I had just danced six hours a day, seven days a week for thirteen weeks without a day off. And I said, you have to understand some guys that are fifty-seven years old are not designed to dance six hours a day, seven days a week. We're designed to dance once a year drunk at a wedding, you know. Uh, But it was, I will tell you this, it was the best workout I've ever had in my life. I bet. Were you aching at night when you got home? Oh, God, you have no idea. I literally would just come home and and fall into bed fully dressed. (laughs) So Blue Collar Comedy Tour was actually a, a, a... Obviously, it was a powerful, became a household name on that. And you got to travel with a bunch of your friends. Obviously, you and Jeff and Ron White was there. Larry the Cable Guy was there. Uh, Did you spend a lot of weeks on the road together? You know what? The promoters did a great job of not doing too many tour leaders like Van Halen does. But I will say this. There was nothing more fun I've ever done in my life. And I don't know if it'll ever be we were just four guys who obviously hit the stratosphere. Um, but it was interesting because it was storm, really. Uh, we appealed to a demographic that had been largely overlooked by the media, yep. and we were doing a clean show, and so anybody could come. And I remember we were supposed to do 10 dates, uh, and that was it. And the first day was supposed to be in Orlando. Well, something came up, and we couldn't do Orlando, so they moved it to, I believe it was Omaha, Omaha or Lincoln, one of those. And we did it, and 9,000 people showed up, and it was off and running. And the point is, I think it's funny, is that about a year later, we did a show in Orlando, and it was the lowest grossing show we ever had. So if it started in Orlando, it might not have ever gotten off the ground. Wow, that's interesting. And it really launched Ron White and Larry the Cable Guy very much, right? It really brought them to the stratosphere, I believe. Yeah, they really did. You know, in fact, the person that probably got the least out of it was me. Uh, because You, you know, were there Jeff already. Was already. Jeff was already pulling in big numbers, and you know, Ron and Larry. So, I, you know, honestly, my career, I never got to that point where I was selling nine and 10,000 tickets a night by myself. Uh, and I used to, it used to really bother me. Uh, but then I realized that, you know, now everybody's kind of dropped off and my numbers have stayed the same as they were before I got there. So I, so I guess there was a little godsend in that, that there wasn't this great drop off of ticket sales. Yeah. But I think it's, it's the broadness of what you do. Also, you do a lot of different things that keeps your name out there and your brand out there, I think. And I think it's, it's, well, it's, I tried that's the, that's a great point. Uh, I, I, that's why. 
you know, if you got an, I do indie movies, I do television shows, like you said, game shows, what, yep. what I figure my, as long as I can keep my name out there, then people are still talking about it. So, uh, you know, it, it worked for what it was supposed to be, I think. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. And, 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 uh, Dr. Phil is a good friend of mine, Phil McGraw. And I don't know if you know this, Phil and Ron White are very close together. They're, they're, I, uh, I did know that, which is at first I thought Ron was seeing him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so Phil, I, I don't know Ron, but I do know Phil very well. And, and, you know, I'm sitting with Phil and he's telling me how his best friend is Ron White. And he, and he finds it interesting because he doesn't drink. Ron certainly does. He doesn't smoke. Ron certainly does. Smokes a number of things. Uh, and how opposite and different they are. You know how he can't call Ron in the morning because he's still sleeping and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes he won't show up. And But, you know, and, and Phil said something really powerful to me. It stuck with me my whole life. And he said to me, you know, you don't have to love everything about someone to love someone. And he was saying that. I, I agree. I think that's a great statement. I love Ron, but I, you know, I also take Ron for what for what he is. You know, he uh, Ron's gonna. We we have all we all said even from the get go that if Ron White got big, watch out, uh, because Ron's gonna be. There. And one of the things I respect and love about Ron is Ron will tell you what he's thinking. Sometimes you go, oh, you probably shouldn't have said that, but <laughs> you know, it's it's Ron, and you just go, okay. You know, and you, and he, and he, you know, he's very honest with himself. I think, uh, you know, he, he uh, and that's all you can ask of someone. And I think that's a great statement. You don't have to love everything about Ron, but there's something lovable. I always said Ron's kind of like that mongrel dog that bites you, but there's something about him. You just keep feeding him. <laughs> yeah. You look in his eyes and you just want to give him more. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I thought it was an unbelievable thing to hear how Phil and he are so close. It's funny. You heard it from the other side. I heard it from Phil's side. So we just verified it. It is, it is in fact, the fact. So <laughs> it's an interesting one. Yeah, Ron, so, Ron's the kind of guy who will come stay at your house, and all of a sudden when he leaves, you realize your most expensive bottle of scotch is empty. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and your humidor is empty, too, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay, so I got a question for you, Bill. So, you know, when, when I look at you, and how you started your career and then, you know, went into to a, a blue-collar comedy and then Wingo, the game show, and then Dancing with the Stars. And, you know, even your Here's Your Sign album uh, made it to number five on the country charts. And then I look at the books that you've written and all the things that you've done. And I'm talking to you now as a business guy, not as a TV guy. What do you do for a living? Are you an actor? Are you a comedian? Are you a writer? Are you a brand builder? Are you a marketer? Um, well, I think the brand itself is the here's your sign guy. You know, uh, he's the guy that the, I'm, I'm the same guy on stage that you'll see at the Walmart, you know. Uh, but I, I think if you really if you want to do it financially, I'm a comedian. Uh, the acting is it's funny because when you when you get a role acting, you actually take a, a price, a, a pay cut because the, the road pays more than the acting does. Right. Uh, so. I think that, you know, I don't know that I would ever want to be just an actor. Uh, I like having that safety net of my comedy. Because, uh, like, if they, you know, there, you may get a movie and then it may be four or five years before you get another one. Yep. Uh, and so it's nice that I have that, you know, when I first started, I, I remember all these guys, and I won't throw names out there, but there was a lot of uh, people out there that were using stand up to get into acting. 
I always perceive myself as a comedian first and an actor second, and to this day I still do, uh, because comedy is what I love. It's a, there's an old phrase in Texas that says you dance with who brought you, and comedy's my my lady. You know, she's the one that's gotten me everything I've I've got. Uh, it wasn't acting; uh, it was it was the stand up, and so. For me to to desert that would be foolish, I think, and and I still you know I still love it. You know the traveling's hard and being away from my wife, especially now that we're empty nesters. You know and we want to do stuff, but uh, you know I just I get emails all the time from people saying they had a bad day and they came and saw the show and they just felt so much better. And I thought you know we serve a higher purpose than just being a guy on stage telling jokes. Well, I agree. You know, my my show Bar Rescue, I shot fifty two. I've done a hundred and two hundred and three episodes in five years. By the way, big fan of that show. Ah, uh, thank you, Bill. So you know, to me, what's happened is, and you're, and you're smiling. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be a this. bar owner that you come into, though. I do love it when you lose your when you lose your cool with them. That's the best. <laughs> oh, it's it's real, man. It's not one word scripted, but you would know that as a professional. But, you know, here's what's what's interesting to me, and, and I bet you agree with this. At the end of Bar Rescue, I always put it in a figurative sense. I get two things. I get a check and I get a hug. And after so many checks, the hug means more than the checks now. And I'm guessing, Without sure, you go, you do a live show. But if you didn't have that audience connection and you didn't feel the way you did after that show, would you have gone on the road for just a check? No, no, because I've always had the, the I've lived by the, the mantra that you got to love what you're doing. You know, uh, that's why I don't, that's why I don't judge anybody by what they do. And like when I'm on a TV show, I'm as nice to the kid getting me a cup of coffee as I am to the head of the network. And I treat them both the same way. Uh, and that was instilled in me by my father and my grandfather. And you know, because at the end of the day, we're all just people. I mean, whether, uh, you know, I come to my house and you go to yours, we're all just people. You know, these these big wigs and stuff, they still go home and sit on the toilet, and they still go home and have arguments with their wives. So I, I think where we get into trouble here is when people start believing their own press, that they're, they're, that, that they're something other than they are. And, it, okay. and I've always said this, is that one day this is all going to be gone. Uh, you know, the stand-up and the acting and all that. And when it does, you better be able to stand in front of the bathroom mirror and look and enjoy the guy you see looking back at you. And, and Because it's going to be an awfully long time if you don't enjoy that guy. And I, you know, for me right now, and, and I think it'll be, and I feel confident it'll be this way the rest of my life, is when this is all done, I, I, I'll tell you a funny story. Somebody asked me, they said, what are you going to do when you're done? I said, we have a ranch in Texas. And I said, and then the old men play checkers and dice. And I said, one day I want to sit on that porch drinking a beer, playing checkers, and have somebody say, hey, weren't you? Uh... And I go, yeah, I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I was reading Johnny Carson's, one of, one of the biographies on him, and he was, in the later years of his life, he just got thrilled when people would walk up to him and say, man, I just have such great memories of you. And, you know, those things meant a lot to him. I think it might have meant more than his $134 million in very many ways. You know, Bill, yeah, I think it, that, well, that, yeah, you're right. At some point, you know, if if all it is is money, then you know, what's the point? Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, what's interesting to me is is I believe your success and Jeff's and many comes back to authenticity. Do you say no to projects sometimes? 
Yeah. Yeah, there's, you know, if there's projects where either, A, I feel like I'm getting taken advantage of, you know, and you know what those are like, the, 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 the kind where it's, and if I don't really feel there's any redeeming value in it, uh, you know, there's, there's been things that have come up that I went, you know what, I don't, I'm not going to look great here and I'm not going to look good to my fans and I don't feel comfortable doing this. Like, like I won't, they wanted me to do a reality show, but I won't do the backbiting, you know, to set up a fight thing. That's just, that's just not me and I can't do it. And, uh, you know, one, I had one show that they wanted me to do and they said, well, what we'll do is we'll start punking. I go, no, no, see, I'm not, I'm not into that. Right. Right. I hear you. It's the only way I can do it on Bar Rescue is because at the end, it's constructive. You know what I mean? Well, at yeah, the end, well, I get that hug and I'm helping help them. somebody yeah. out. You didn't just, you didn't come in there and set them up to fail. Exactly. You know, you, you were literally trying to help them out. I am. And, and it gets intense only because I'm only there for a couple of days. You know, I'm doing like three months work in four days, which makes it pretty intense. But but uh, no, uh, uh, it's always well-meaning. And that's how I live with myself at the end of it is I, I do get that hug. So, Bill, what have you not done that you really want to do? Is there anything that you haven't done? Any place you want to go? Yeah, anything? You know, what's your bucket list? all on ice, I don't know what to do anymore. <laughs> but I don't think anybody wants to see me in a leotard. The, no, uh, you know, I got to tell you, buddy, I, I just, I'm at such a comfortable place in my life that I'm just kind of sitting back and seeing what comes my way, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not into jumping through the hoops anymore. You know, I've established my name, I've established what I can do. And if somebody wants to put me in a TV show, that's great. But if not, I'm okay with that too. Yeah. You know, I was, I did Steve Harvey's show a few weeks ago and Steve and I were talking during a commercial break about how we get to a point in life where we get to do what we want to do, not what we have to do. And you know, right. the have I, to do is you're taking that, care that, of. Now. That's exactly, <laughs> you know, like these movies and stuff I do now, I do these now cause I want to. You know, early when I was young, it was all money, you know, and then thank God I matured and grew up. And uh, and so now, you know, I get uh, people call me and, and if I like the project, I'll, I'll jump in and do it. You know, I'll do indie films, you know, where, you know, where craft services is a bag of Fritos, you know, that they have no <laughs> money. But I enjoy, I enjoy if I, because it's, it's fun for me now. You know, and, and, and I hope that uh, everybody gets a chance to get to that point in their life where you're just doing things because it's fun. Yeah, me too. You've been a great example to everyone, and I hope listeners today you know, saw the side of you uh, 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 from an ambition, risk taker, uh, uh, a hard worker, discipline going forward. Uh, uh, you've been married how many years? I'll be 36 this December. That speaks about you as a man. It does. And, and, well, and, you know, or, hats or off her. It speaks about her because she should have split a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that about my wife, Nicole, as well. Anyway, you're a great example. I tell my God bless my wife because if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be where I'm at. I'd be that guy you see in front of a convenience store bumming a cigarette. Yeah, I feel the same way about mine, buddy. You've been a great example to all of us, you know, as a risk taker, well, as a comedian, as an actor. It's been an honor talking to you, brother. I, this is a, but I was like, when I got the call, I was like, oh, yeah, man, I like his show. I'd love to talk to him. All uh, right, great. Well, let's do a beer one day. You got it, my brother. 
wow, I have sort of tingles on, on me. You know, I love people that are risk takers or passionate. You know, when you're a comedian standing on stage and you say a new joke, every joke is a risk, Casey. You know, everything that you do is a risk. Oh, that didn't work. That didn't work. This didn't work. Oh, man, I bombed. I was terrible. But I got to go out there tomorrow and do it again. You know, when you think about how tough it is to come up in that world and then, you know, to do Dancing with the Stars and then do a game show and, you know, do stand up. And, you know, Bill is a very courageous guy and he's an example for all of us of what happens when we don't say no. This is what happens when we say yes, when we put our fears aside and, and, and you know, we let ambition take over. And the end result is he's a household name. He's living his life exactly the way he wants to on his ranch in Texas. And he gets to do what he wants to, not what he has to. And he's doing what he wants to now because he did what he had to then. He said yes. Can, see, can you believe we're in week seven of the NFL? It's going so fast. So have you gotten that pigskin knowledge to make you money on BetDSI? I'm trying to. I'm following your picks, John. Following you. Well, BetDSI is celebrating 20 years online and has built an impeccable reputation for great service and fast payment of your winnings. To help you get started with some extra bang for your buck, BetDSI is offering to double your money on your first deposit. That's right. Deposit and start winning and get up to $2,500 free. That's double your money right from the get-go. And when it comes to football, BetDSI has every wage you could ever want or imagine. If it's happening... Bet DSI will put a line on it. Bet on the NFL, NCAA football, MLB, NBA, UFC, esports, and other global sports, and even bet on politics, celebrities, and reality shows for that matter. You can also bet on games while they are playing with Bet DSI's live betting. So join Bet DSI today using promo code TAFFER101, and you've already won by doubling your bankroll straight away. That's promo code TAFFER101 to get in the action and get paid. Once you become a member, you'll have all this sweet bonus money. What are you going to do with it, Casey? You know, I don't know. Buy some Sears stock. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know about that. I wouldn't do Sears stock or uh, Snapchat either. I'd stay away from the two of those, buddy. Shut it down. Shut it down. I am excited because this is, I think, one of my favorite times in the show. Is it not, it Casey? Is. It, is. it is your favorite time of the show, John. So I get to talk to, to, to my fans and audience, and anybody who wants to talk to me should send me an email, podcast at johntaffer.com, podcast at johntaffer.com. Come on, be tough. Lay it on me. Give me some tough questions about life. Give me some challenges. Give me some financial dilemmas. Put me in a political box. Corner me. Challenge me. And I will answer. I'm not sure it'll be right, but I will answer, Casey. Please send me an email at podcast at johntaffer.com, and you and I could be talking on this podcast next week. So we got some good callers this week, Casey? Hey, John. So we've got Adam from Long Island, New York, on the phone, who is looking for some uh, personal some personal growth uh, help. He's trying to decide whether he wants to uh, go away to school or not and just grow his life. Are you there, Adam? Yeah, I'm ready. Hey, John, what's up, brother? How are you, Adam? And one Long Islander to another Long Islander, buddy. I know, man. I know. You're from Great Neck, right? I am. So wh where are you That's at? That's awesome, man. Where My mother's from Queens. Uh-huh. So, so you're just right over the line in Queens. You buy Little Neck or Douglaston there? Yeah, Douglaston. Yep. Gotcha. So what What do you want to talk about today, Adam? You, th you got a decision to make? 
So, you know, I'm deciding whether to go away to school or stay home. I kind of want my independence because I worked so hard in my life to really get my grades together in college. I started on NASA Community College, graduating, graduated as an honor, honor um, society student. And now I just kind of want some independence, man. You know, I just kind of want to, you know, enjoy my life a little bit, but still work hard at the same time. And I'm actually going into occupational therapy, and I kind of want to know whether I should go away to school and explore something new or stay at home for school. You know, it, 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 I'm going to tell you exactly what I told my own daughter. My daughter wanted to go to a community college. And when I went to college, Adam, I learned more about being on my own than I did in the classroom. You know, it was such mm. a powerful experience to be away from home, away from my parents, having to deal with roommates and apartment, my own life, having to manage my own budget, make sure I had my own dinner, my own lunch, my own breakfast, having to create friends in a whole new world where I had none. That experience was every bit as powerful for me as the education in the classrooms themselves. So when my daughter chose to go to college, my daughter, Samantha, who's now 30 and is a very successful uh, uh, liquor distributor executive, uh, uh, I forced her to go away to school. She wanted to go to community college and stay home and hang out with her friends. And I really felt that that would limit her growth as an individual, not her education, but her growth as an individual. So I forced my daughter to go at least five hours from home where she couldn't come home every weekend and go to college. And I'll never forget the first night I took her to college. She's in the dorm, Adam, and I'm dropping her off in the dorm. And I'm standing in the front step of the dorm, and I'm about to get in my car, and she's crying. Dad, I don't want to be here. Dad, I want to go home. Dad, I don't want to be here. Well, I got a hotel room two blocks away, spent the night. She knew she could call me anytime. I'd come back in the morning. But I was going to make her stay in that dorm that night uh, uh, because I knew that in the morning she'd be fine. Well, it was really wow, hard for her, buddy. She, God, she, I really she, do. She went away, you know, she was away from her parents in this dorm with all these strange people. And I left her that night. She was crying on the steps and I, she went up in the elevator and I drove away to the hotel. And here's a secret, Adam. A lot of fathers won't say this, but I cried too that night in the hotel room, really terrified about my little girl. And did I give her the wrong advice? Next morning, I go back to the dorm to a smiling daughter who's introducing me to the friends that she made that night. Those years wow. in college meant the world to her. She met her, her boyfriend in that city who she married, uh, uh, a Cody. She then st started her career in that city. And I read a statistic just a few weeks ago that almost 40% of college students wind up living in the city that they go to college in. So here's my advice yeah. to you. Adam. Life is about gaining experience, buddy. It's about meeting as many people as you can, seeing as many things as you can, going to as many places as you can. Each person you meet, each thing you do, and each place you go grows you as an individual. You deserve that growth. You're a good student. You've made honor lists. You've worked hard to get to school. Don't rip yourself off on the experience side. Go away to college and gain from that experience. You'll be much better off for it. What do you think? Okay, I, I love that, buddy. And, you know, and would you mind if I just tell you something else, actually, too, if that's okay? Sure. So um, my, my dad has been the sort of person who kind of, you know, grew up, you know, as a, you know, a really blue-collar union type guy, you know, worked for Amtrak for a long time, and he wanted me to stay home for college. And, you know, he made me feel like that going away would be a waste of my time. And, you know, to me, I see that as an investment of my education and really, you know, putting the time in, putting the energy in, getting the experience of being on my own. 
I completely he did agree. Me that when I was younger. I completely agree. Now, I'm not sure there's a right or wrong answer to this. Your, your father's not wrong, and I'm not necessarily right. Uh, uh, there's different things for different people. But if you feel that going away is going to make you a better, more experienced, rounded individual and, and help you in your life experience, then that's exactly what you should do. If you feel strongly about staying home, then that's what you should do. But, buddy, I think, you know, from talking to you these few minutes, go out there, but experience everything that you can. I think you'll be a better man for it, Adam. Oh, wow, John. I thank you so much, buddy. And before I hang up, I just have one question I've always wanted to ask you. Um, what type of music did you like growing up um, listening to? You? I'm, a, I'm a big Frank Zappa fan, and I've always wondered, were you um, a um, big guy into that? Because I know you played the drums when you were younger. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Frank Zappa, because I still have this poster. It's in my theater at home. I have a poster of Frank Zappa, stark naked, sitting on a toilet in a bathroom. And at, the, <laughs> and at the bottom of the poster... Oh, says, God, that's wonderful. At, at the <laughs> bottom great. of the poster, it says, Fi Zappa Crappa. And, and that is the poster. I once saw Frank oh, Zappa... Oh, buddy, that's amazing. That's I once saw Frank Zappa amazing, Mother's John. Invention. Adam, I once saw Frank Zappa in the Mothers of Invention at the Fillmore East in New York City many years ago. And Frank Zappa came out in a Dayglo jockstrap. He wasn't wearing anything else. And he put his guitar in front of the amplifier, turned the volume up all the way so the feedback started, and then they walked off the stage. That was the entire concert. That's Frank Zappa. Oh, wow, that's incredible. What an incredible, wow, that's incredible. What, an, what a life experience. I wish I could have grew up in the 60s, man. <laughs> Oh, it was a lot of fun, I'll tell you that. Adam, it was great to talk yeah. to you, buddy. Take care. So, John, let's go over to Archie. Archie is in Louisiana, and Archie uh, is a 36-year-old blind man. He just wrote a book. He has an online wrestling company, and he's having trouble getting some growth uh, in his sales. Needs your help. Hey, Mr. Taffer. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Call me John, Archie. So, so uh, what is wrestling online? Explain that to me. What What is your business? Well, Wrestling Behind Ringside is um, it's a podcast and as well a website that pays tribute to uh, everything that deals with professional wrestling. Um, I grew up a WWE fan for many, many years since I was five years old. So it's kind of gotten into my blood. And since I was unable to become a wrestler or get into the wrestling business, this website was a way for me to give back to to the wrestling business uh, for what they've given me for the years. So this is your passion. You love wrestling, uh, and bringing it to the masses is something that brings you pleasure. Correct, yes. I mean, the, you know, wrestling is so much into my blood that it's even, you know, made its way into my book. So um, it's just how, you know, how I think and... How, how much I, you know, love and respect that business, you know. So how can I help you today? Well, I um, actually have a few things that are, you know, happening right now and in the near future. And I'm needing some help with uh, market, marketing strategies. Um, for example, my book, um, the main thing behind my book is you know, me being a blind author. Um, it's something that a lot of people have not heard of. Um, so, like, how can I push that? You know, it's funny. I, I have a, a, a few blind friends. And sometimes I think they see more than any of us. 
<laughs> to be honest with you, Archie. You know, you, you have this ability uh, uh, because of, uh, 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 you're not sighted. Uh, you have a certain sensitivity and a perception about other things that I think is far greater. And, and that's what I find with my, uh, with my unsighted friends as well, is that th- they have certain sensitivities and, and connectivities that I find other people don't. So, you know, it's a big challenge. It's a very noisy marketplace out there, Archer. You know, there's a million websites, there's a million people. Let me give you a couple of suggestions. You know, Marketing online has to get noticed, and the way you get noticed is with some type of an engagement. I would suggest you look at running some type of a contest for wrestlers. You know, who is the most who did that? Who is the most for that? What is the history of this? I would do some history of wrestling event that happens online once a week where people can compete to win a T-shirt or maybe go to a wrestling event or maybe meet you or something along those lines. You need to create some piece of content that happens every week that people want to participate in. So it could be wrestling trivia. It could be an update on the fights of the week. It could be a special interview with a wrestler. It could be an interview with a promoter or a manager. What could you do each week on your social media channels and websites? And I don't want you to answer this now. I want you to think about it. That would be yours. Is it wrestling trivia? Is is it world of wrestling uh, uh, history? Is it old clips that you can pull online that are common to name that you can republish. You got to give me a reason as a wrestling fan to want to hit your site once a week or go to your social media pages because I know something is going to be there that I'm interested in. Does that make sense? So That definitely does make sense, yes. So even on my social media channels, if I run a contest or a trivia contest, my engagement numbers go way up because people participate and they share it and they forward it and it becomes an interactive activity. So when I look at my social media results, anything that I do that is contest or interactive in that kind of way that causes people to come back week after week gets the highest engagement that we possibly can. So give some thought to that. What could be weekly content that you do once a week that's fun, that's engaging? What is their daily content that you could do? Is there the Wednesday wrestling report that comes out every Wednesday? Is it weekend Wednesday wrestling report that comes out? Is it the Monday wrestlers review that comes out? What is it that you can create that is yours, that you can own every week? If you can create that content, get it online and work it week after week, you have the potential of it growing. If you don't have that predictability in what you're doing online and in your website, I'll come see your site this week, but I don't have a reason to come back next week. Does that make sense? You got to give me that reason to come back. So look at trivia contests, promotions, historical clips, you know, interviewing wrestlers, you know, on the phone, just like we are right now. Come up with that weekly event. That will excite you and get people to come to your site. That's a great way to start. And if you can create that traffic on your social media pages because of this weekly thing that you do, you can now feed that to sell your book. You can now feed that to your website. And, you know, David Portnoy, who owns Barstool Sports, said something fascinating a few weeks ago when he was on this podcast. He said, you got to have the eyeballs. If you have the eyeballs, everything else will come together. So who's looking at your page? Who's going to your page? Think about that and come up with something fun that you can do every week. Does that help you, Archie? That, that does help me. Um, it helps me a great bit. And there's one other thing that I do have going on. It is sound for sure eyes where um, the money that I am raising um, goes to help 
people with poor vision get supplies that they may need. So if they need a walking cane or, you know, a talking clock or something like that, to help them with their everyday life to get them back to normal. Wow. So is that a nonprofit that you're involved in trying to help people? Yes. Would you do me a favor when we're finished with this interview, give the information to KC, my producer, and I'll promote this for you. If it's a nonprofit and you're trying to help people, unsighted people that could use talking clocks, braille books, anything like that, to help them get through their lives and, and attain success, uh, uh, I will help you do that. So please, Casey will talk to you when we're finished with this interview. I'll let him get some information from you. I'll drop it on my social channels. Let me see if I can help you help some other people. All right. That sounds good. Great, Archie. Casey will talk to you in a minute. Great to talk to you, buddy. Keep going. I'm proud of you. All right. You know, thank you. you. And shut it You've down overcome a lot. You can overcome this, too. Don't you agree? Oh, definitely. All right. I'll get his info off the air. And... John, let's go over to Austin. He is a young 24. He's in Chicago, and he wants to know how you got started as an entrepreneur. Hey, John. How's it going? Good. How are you? What's your name? Austin. I'm a big fan of the show. I watch all the time. Ah, oh, I thought you were in Austin, Texas. You're Austin. <laughs> hey, buddy. Nice to meet you. Yeah, my name's Austin. I'm from Chicago. Yep. Gotcha. My wife's from Chicago. So, so uh, 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 Cubs didn't do so well this year. They sort of fizzled out, huh? Yeah, it was tough. I uh, did not enjoy that too much, but I have to get to tough lately, so can't complain too much. Yeah, I hear you. One of my uh, favorite bar rescues was in Wrigleyville there, where I rescued the dugout bar, and I walked out on him, and I remodeled yeah, I actually, his bar, yeah, and I walked yeah, I was there the a few weeks ago. Um, how, how did that episode go down? It was a pretty, pretty surreal episode, I feel like. Yeah, is it still open? Yeah, it's still open. Uh, it's different now, though. I'm not sure if they got a new owner or whatnot, but uh, it definitely looks different than when you left it. Yeah, that guy was not exactly the best representation of Chicago, <laughs> if you know what I mean, Austin. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it was not a good, not a good man. <laughs> yeah. So how can I help you today, buddy? What do you want to talk about? Yeah, I'm just kind of curious. You know, I'm young. I just graduated college a couple years ago. Uh, I work for a company right now, but I've always kind of had an entrepreneurial spirit. And I was wondering how you kind of got started in the bar business and any advice you have for a guy who's kind of just trying to find his way. You know, it's interesting. Uh, 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 I really never had a plan. I went to college and took political science classes. Mm -hmm. And I started tending bar in college. And I found something that I really loved. And I never said to myself, I'm going to have a career in the bar business. It just sort of happened. I loved it. So I did it next month, the next month, the next month. And I loved it so much that I kept learning and learning and learning. So for me, entrepreneurial opportunities came uh, uh, just through evolution from doing what I loved. So I started running bars and then uh, I, I was running a troubadour in Hollywood, California, which is a very famous club in 1963. Gotcha. Lenny Bruce got arrested on a troubadour stage for saying MF <laughs> on stage back then. Boy, times changed. But I ran a troubadour and, and uh, uh, when I was running a troubadour, somebody did an article on me because I had done some big event at the troubadour and suddenly I was hired by a hotel company and I was a food and beverage manager at a huge resort. And then I became a resort manager. And then after a few years, I got so good at what I did. And this is a really cocky statement to make, but I'm going to make it to you, Austin, because I want to be honest. I found that I knew more than most of the people around me. So I said, screw it. I'm starting my own company. So I started my own company, and my first clients were huge corporations. And I found that huge companies, and I'm going to get a phone call for this one, but huge, com huge <laughs> companies like Holiday Inn and Marriott Hotels and Hilton Hotels all have been my clients over the years. And you know what? Mm -hmm. They are every bit as screwed up as the small disorganized company that's on Main Street USA. 
And I learned at a young age, you know what? These big companies, these big attorneys, all of these high-powered people, you know what, Austin? They're no freaking smarter than you are. They're no more organized than you are. They're no more capable than you are. So I could walk into huge companies and shake them up and make a difference because I found out that they're just as screwed up as we are. So here's my point. As an entrepreneur, you need to find what you love because if you don't love it, you're not going to be good at it. So you really need to think, not that I want to be an entrepreneur, but what do I want to do? What do I want to sell? What do I want to make? What do I want to produce? What do I want to do? What gives me pleasure? And once you answer that question and chase that dream, you'll just wind up being an entrepreneur. You see my point? You start. Yeah, that's good. That's good way to think about it, though. Don't think about Don't put the entrepreneur first. Put the thing mm-hmm. first, and the entrepreneur will happen. Make sense? Good to know. Yeah, it does. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care, Austin. One more question, John. How do you feel about your nights this year? <laughs> well, we, we are off to a rough start. I got to tell you that. We dropped off. <laughs> but we won the other say. night. We're going for a big second win tomorrow. You know, we've had some injuries. So we haven't quite slipped yeah. into our groove. But on paper, we're a better team this year than we were last year. But, I agree. It's <laughs> a lot of time left. And, but our numbers don't show it yet. So let's hope we win our second one tomorrow night. <laughs> I'm you, sure, I'm sure uh, you will. The Flyers kicked our butt pretty good the other night. You must be happy about that. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, nice to talk to you, Austin. Take care, Thanks, John. Have a good one. See you. This is now, I think, Casey, my 10th, 11th podcast. I've only been doing this for a few months. Doing great. And every week, I seem to enjoy it more. I love doing podcasts. I love talking to our guests. We've had great guests. Bill was incredible this week. There's a lot of lessons to be learned from the success of others. I love talking to the audience. You know, I love reviewing news stories and talking. This is the most fun I've ever had doing this podcast. It's more fun than Bar Rescue than anything else that I do. So I got to say goodbye now, not by choice, Casey, but because I have to. But the one thing I know, I'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. You know, Casey, I sort of hate buying a car. Oh, me too. I mean, you don't know if they're being straight with you. You know, are, are you getting the right price? Uh, 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 is the interest rate right? Is the deal right? It's really frustrating. It's a lot of freaking money. If you screw it up, you can really impact your wallet big time. So if you're looking to buy a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for. But what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, dealer price. It's enough to confuse anybody. I don't even understand what the hell it means. If you're really looking for a price that actually means something, introducing true price from true car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories before you even get to the dealership. True car dealers will show how to get the true price on cars like the one you want all from the comfort of home. And how do you know if your true price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people paid for the same car that you want. And your certified dealers know this. So they set their true price competitively so that they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new or a used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states.